Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1951 Billy Wilder film Ace in the Hole. Let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, uh, this I really liked this movie. I watched this with um, with my wife and my daughter, and we were all like it was great because i did not know what this was going to be about and again i from the title i i was thinking is this a poker movie what is this going to be and uh uh you know i was thinking a lot about the title and it turns out the title is a it's a it's spoken in the film and it's a very literal it's a very literal title to a certain degree um but but really loved it i'm a sucker for a uh, a journalism movie in general, and this is a particular take on journalism uh, and, and the media. Uh, but let, maybe let's start with uh, what is your history with this film in particular? Because this is a film that itself has a pretty unique story. Yeah, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember how I found it out. So um, I, I will I will backtrack a little bit and just tell you a little bit about my history with Billy Wilder. Although we've talked about Wilder before. Because I realized the other day, as I was looking, uh, reading more about Wilder's career, that my first Billy Wilder film was actually the 1974 remake of The Front Page, um, which I saw in the theater. Um, but I must—I I, I know I came to Ace in the Hole through just my general interest in film noir. Uh, and so at some point, I, I know that I would not have seen it until it actually came out on DVD, because up until the DVD release, it was called The Big Carnival, which is how the... Um, for some reason, for the for the release for the Paramount Bill. By the way, it's our second Paramount film in a row. Uh, Happened one night was also Paramount. Um, for some reason, Paramount retitled it Big Carnival. Um, although evidently the executives in private referred to it as Ass in the Ringer. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I honestly don't remember exactly. So it would have been sometime within the last probably ten years that I just picked up on it because of Sunset Boulevard. Well, and it seems like this is a movie. I mean, I mean the 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 story outside of this film is that this is this is the this is Wilder's follow up to Sunset Boulevard. So this mm-hmm. is the a year later, um, where that was this pretty very successful movie. This is a movie that uh, that was critically not adored, commercially not successful. I mean. Uh, and then it seems like it seems like much. Later. I was trying to figure out when it kind of was reappraised, like like when people started to look at this movie. Because when you read uh, contemporary reviews, reviews that came out at the time, they're very critical of it. But when you l- read reviews from today, you hear the word masterpiece thrown around. You know, f- even for someone like Wilder who has this amazing filmography, there are people who say this is the Wilder film. And I don't think that's necessarily being contrarian. I think it's, or maybe it's a little bit of that, but I think it's also people realizing that this is a movie that was a sort of appreciated too late. Do you have a sense of when things kind of turned with this movie? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me say that Wilder himself in an interview said that it was in fact his best picture. Um, and one of the things that is significant about this film, in addition to being his, one of his first kind of commercial flops is it's the first film that he made after breaking with Charles Brackett. Um, and he and Brackett wrote Sunset Boulevard together. And then, well, he, he, he famously just kind of dumped Brackett without any, any explanation. Um, but I, I, think, I think the film turned a corner. It's, as I alluded to earlier, its DVD release was 2007. 
Um, a lot of the reviews I was reading were kind of around 2014 or so, and I can't remember if that's when Wilder died. Uh, it may have been right about in there, but I think people started reevaluating it uh, certainly then. But even earlier, I was looking at an article written in the early 90s when it was so-called The Big Carnival, and even then they said, this is a film that flopped in its time because of some, some contemporary context, which we can go into. Uh, but today, because the landscape of bullet journalism and social media has changed so much, the film actually ends up looking really prophetic uh, and even, in a sense, kind of more timely than it did at the time. So maybe let's get into why why was this not not uh, not a success? No, I will say it. Um, I think Wilder won the equivalent of best director at the Venice Film Festival. Yeah. This was nominated for the Golden Lion, and it was nominated for best screenplay. So it wasn't it wasn't totally shut out of like people kind of appraising it at the time. But why why was this uh, so critically and commercially unsuccessful in 1951? Well, you know, a, a, an Oscar Wilde quote just popped into my head. Wilde said something like, um, the, uh, the, rage, the, the rage of Caliban is the rage of romanticism seeing its face in the mirror. Um, I think the way this, you know, you know, and of course that's a, you know, it's an image from Shakespeare, this notion that art holds a mirror up to nature. I think in this case, the, the way that the film held a mirror up to contemporary society was something that um, challenged society, and especially if you think about the reviewers who would, who would number themselves among journalists, uh, I think to them it was too unflattering, to be frank, a portrait. And, and it's interesting, if you compare it with Sunset Boulevard, as you said just a year earlier, Sunset Boulevard uh, takes Hollywood to task. And, and, and Hollywood is great at self-flagellation. Uh, and so they, you know, they, they love to call themselves out even while they're making tons of money in, in the process of doing so. But, but this calls out journalism at a time, 1951, right? Uh, McCarthyism is just getting started. There's this whole issue of um, how reliable is the press? Uh, how trustworthy uh, are, are the reports that, that, that we're getting? Uh, can, we, can we believe in the American institutions? You know, and journalism is one of those great institutions. And so it's interesting to me because as other films noir do, this is very much a post-war cynical film. Leo is a, is a, is a vet. And films noir were generally popular uh, at the time for kind of capturing that bleak post-war world. But they always did so kind of at a remove, right? This is the world of the private detective. This is the underworld. This is mainstream American society. And this film was telling us that, it's, that one of the elements of the, one of the pillars of our democracy is fundamentally corrupt or corruptible. And I don't think people wanted to hear or see that. Um, this leads me to, uh, man, there's so many directions I want to go. This leads me to a question that I wrote um, as I was thinking about this. I, I, I wrote the, the uh, quote that's kind of embroidered in the, uh, in the offices, you know, tell the truth as like the mantra of the, the, uh, the New Mexico newspaper that Tatum is working for. Um, and, and everything that I read about this, even contemporary and stuff now, um, use the word cynical a lot to talk about this film. And, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, a, I love to give you questions that are false choices. Cause the truth is probably both or neither or whatever. Is this film cynical or is this film truthful? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's where I think in some ways the contemporary response kind of fails to note the fact that we do have Mr. Boot 
uh, we do have genuine journalists, um, and we have a very cynical journalist. And so I think the film is telling the truth about the, uh, the reality of cynicism and the potential for the kind of big carnival that uh, Chuck Tatum puts on. Um, and, I, and, I, and it's interesting to me, too, that when people think of this film as purely cynical, I think, and this struck me on watching it this, uh, again, maybe the third time, um, I was really struck by the kind of um, kind of conscience or moral awakening that even Chuck Tatum shows at the end, right? He he loses the New York gig because he stays with Leo all night, and so he doesn't file the story with in New York. When he does talk to New York, now admittedly this this may be because he wants a big story, but he's willing to confess that he basically is responsible for killing uh, Leo, and nobody will pick up on that on, on that story. And even the reason why he's stabbed um, by Leo's wife is because he's actually become genuinely concerned for Leo and genuinely concerned about their relationship and feels a real uh, loyalty to Leo and wants her to feel the same way. So I think that that undertone with the Tatum character, that even Tatum isn't rotten to the core, um, maybe it comes too late in the film to kind of rescue it for those critics. They felt like, you know, the big carnival already happened, all the cynical damage already been done. But I do think that even Tatum isn't uh, isn't completely rotten. Yeah, I it, it's 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 interesting because because Tatum dies at the end, like where we don't get the we don't get to ask the question of well, what would Tatum look like after this? Like like how is he affected by this? You know, instead we have him we have him collapsing dead. So it's like well. We don't get to we don't get to know that, but it, but it's sort of like it's one of those where I would have been fascinated to know what is the next. 10, 15, 20 years of this guy's life look like after kind of pushing the big carnival as far as he as far as he does coming to this realization to know like does this change him? How does this change him? Or is or or, or is this sort of a a blip and and he still is the person he is? And you know, the truth is probably somewhere in somewhere in the middle there. One of the things that I really liked about this and I like not knowing this. And then when I when it started, I'm like, oh. A journalism film. I'm excited about this. I love movies like All the President's Men. I love a movie like Spotlight, which sort of champion journalism journalists as like the people who are the seekers after truth. And I was so um, smacked across the face by this movie when I realized, oh, the person I'm going to be following is actually not that. He's he is you know uh, concocting. Well, I mean, he he's he, there's a real story there but he is um, shaping it and using it and trying to get something out of it. And then watching the uh, industry grow up around this story that he creates. It's so interesting because it's not just him that's doing this, but it, if we're talking about turning a mirror, right, this, this turns a mirror on all of us. You know, I was one of the, the characters that I was so interested in was the, the family that comes uh, that comes in the in the trailer, and then when they're being interviewed on the radio, and they're like making a point to say, "I heard this other person say that they were the first ones here. We were the first ones here." <laughs> and it's like, you know, everybody is complicit in this thing, even if they're being conned, you know, into you know into thinking in, into sort of buying into what the story is. They're also all in all of these ways looking out for themselves because even that guy who's like wanting to be first, he's not just an innocent there too. Like, like listen to what he does in that interview. He starts selling insurance. 
right? He starts like, okay, well, I'm on the radio now. This is my opportunity to talk about, you know, to talk about the importance of of life insurance and things like this. And it's like, I thought that was, uh, I really loved that. I thought that that was one of those things where where the satire seemed very effective and pretty believable. Like it didn't seem, um, sometimes satire has to go really, really far to make a point. And you're like, well, I don't know that it would actually happen like that, but the underlying ideas feel true. This felt like it could be pretty true. Well, we should note that he works for the Pacific All Risk Company, which, of course, is the insurance company in double indemnity. Uh, so it's a little bit of a wild or soft reference. And then for those of us who grew up in the 60s, we might have recognized that actor as um, Sam Drucker on both uh, Petticoat Junction and Green Acres, which were two shows that ran simultaneously. Um, I, I think you, you've touched on a couple of really interesting points, Sam. One is that um, not only is the film a cynical look at American journalism, it's also a cynical look at American politics because of the deal that he makes with the, uh, the sheriff. And it's a kind of a um, H.L. Mencken-esque view of the American public as boobs. Uh, people who can easily be easily rooked and and fooled. So I think that's another reason maybe why the film really rankled people because it got it got underneath the skin in all those areas, saying you can't trust journalists, you can't trust politicians, you can't trust political process. People are idiots; they're taken in by this stuff, and and and, and that's what was one. I think ultimately beyond the critique of journalism, I think it was the critique of human nature people being seen as corrupt and gullible that really wasn't something people wanted to think about in 1951 with everything else that was going on. Um, I also want to say, to get back a little bit to, to the death of, of Chuck Tatum and uh, what would have happened if he had lived, I think that the moral awakening literally kills him, um, uh, figuratively and, and literally. I don't think he's capable of being Chuck Tatum without being cynical, manip manipulative, and corrupt. Uh, and so... Uh, it's according to the Hayes Code that he should die because he's so bad, uh, but it's also according to uh, his nature, in a sense, that he needs to die. Yeah, and one of the things that I found interesting about this, as we're thinking about like uh, this reflecting on different aspects of life, um, even thinking about Wilder himself. So uh, the, a couple stories that I, I came across um, Wilder talking about this movie and kind of defending this movie um, to to critics. Uh, one of the stories he tells is about being a um, or when he's when he's in L.A. At, at some point, he sees a car accident. Did you mm. come across this story? No. He, no. he encounters a car accident and it's like a pretty, uh, pretty devastating car accident. I think there's somebody who's basically there on the road dying mm. and he notices another car pull up. And it's a guy who just happened by happenstance is a photographer for the L.A. Times. And he starts to take pictures and mm -hmm. Wilder turns to the guy and says, you've got to call, you've got to call an ambulance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he says, the guy literally says to him, no, I've got pictures. I've got to get them to the, to the LA times. Yeah. And, and Wilder was like, you see, this is, this is, this is real. This is, this is a, that is a microcosm of this, mm -hmm. uh, some of the motivations in the story. Now, the, another interesting story is that Wilder, uh, while, while he, while he was living in Germany, was himself a journalist, right? So he has a background in journalism and he tells a story about um, writing a story about a murder case. And he was told by his editors to go interview the parents of the victim and of the murderer. 
And he said that he was contemplating having to talk to the parents of the murderer. And he said he couldn't do it. So he ended up just interviewing them in his head and writing answers. So he, so he, so, which is interesting because he's like, he's not just saying, this is this thing apart from me that I'm criticizing. There is a self-criticism in this. I mean, this, this is a story he tells about his own life of like, yeah, this is, this is also real in that way. This, like, there's a degree to which, you know, there is this kind of creation that's happening in journalism. You know, in his case, it's because he couldn't bring himself to go talk to these people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I found that really interesting to think that somebody with that kind of background um, would bring that to, to a movie like this. Wow. Wow. Um, I was thinking about uh, you mentioned sort of how kind of prophetic this movie ends up, ends up feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me of when I watched, this was probably about, probably about 10, 10 years ago was the first time, first time I watched the movie network. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminded me of that feel where, where I was watching something that was considerably older than the time I was living in. And I just, I was again, smacked across the face by like, I can't believe how much they got this right. Yeah. No, that that's a, I, that's a really good connection, Sam. I hadn't thought about that because I remember seeing Network again. I, I saw it when it came out. Um, and I remember thinking at one point, oh, this is just going over the top. So, so in a sense, maybe, you know, my response in what was that, 1976 to Network, was sort of similar to maybe the contemporary audience, the contemporary response in 51 Days in the Hole because I remember that, you know at one point the it seemed to me that it had just verged into absurdity but now that I, when I look at what's happened in on television through various uh, cable networks and all of that I mean if anything network understates what's actually happened and I think Ace in the Hole similarly kind of gets at this whole notion that with with a 24 hour news cycle there's not enough news to fill 24 hours. So you've got to make news. And, and that's, that's literally what Chuck Tatum is doing. And as you said, you know, he starts with a seed. It's not like he didn't cause the cave-in, um, but having st- having had that opportunity, he then does, in, sense, in a sense, kind of create the story. And I think that's what we see in media today. Um, you know, my wife was reading me something this morning about some, I don't know, E-list celebrity I've never heard of. Um, and yet there's all this stuff being written about, about this person, um, because you got to write stuff. You got, you got to, you got to fill in, uh, you know, and, and with all the various news outlets we have now, all the social media outlets we have now, you know, the appetite is simply, simply voracious. And so I think that was one of the really kind of prescient elements of this film. Well, and I think, I think the other, my other takeaway from this, so, so my wife and I were talking about, about this movie afterwards was, it's very easy to, and and I think um, in one of the reviews they they were critical of people who talked about this movie as ahead of its time. It's like it was predicting where things were heading, which is in some ways true. But it but I think we lose the fact that whether mm-hmm. we're talking about network, whether we're talking about this, it's shedding light on mm-hmm. versions of things that are happening. Now we're we live in this hyper world because uh, I mean I think these movies point to me to say this is how uh this is the effect of something like the internet and the 24 hour news cycle is like is that we the stuff that was that felt like hidden and on the edges a little bit maybe in 1951 just is now the stuff we say out loud (laughs) you know but it's not it's not that that stuff wasn't there and that you know if we were to go back to the 1850s 
we could probably find these same things. If we were to go back to the Roman mm-hmm. Empire, we could find it's like it's like these are these things are about human nature, um, not just about like look at how bad we've gotten now. Um, no, I mean uh, right. There, you know, there's the, there's the famous remark. Um, I think it's Lewis Mumford said. You know that technology is a human amplifier. And so I think you're right. There's always been, you know, the other, the other, the other thing we could label this in, term, in contemporary terms is fake news. There, there's, a, there's always been fake news. And, and wasn't it Mark Twain who said something like, you know, a lie will get halfway around the world before the truth has even put its pants on? You know, so, so, so there's always been this, uh, this uh, you know, people have always spread false rumors, false, false fake news. It's just that now we have the ability to do so in a way that makes it very difficult to distinguish between what is real and what isn't real. Um, and one of the ways the film even undermines that notion is how do I know that what I read is real or true? Just because I listen to NPR and read the New York Times, why do I think that somehow that information is more trustworthy than information from other news sources? And it's because I trust the integrity of the organization and I trust the integrity of the individuals making the reporting, which is why when a New York Times reporter gets called for fabricating or distorting or misquoting, that does shake me up a little bit because I'm thinking, I'm, you know, to me, the New York Times should be like Uncle Walt when Walter Cronkite was, uh, was America's um, uh, father. You know, so I think that's why Tech, that's what that's the role that the, that the technology plays, right? It doesn't create the false news, but it makes it possible for that to per, permeate uh, the airwaves and uh, and our screens. Absolutely. Another movie that I thought about uh, when I was thinking about movies we've watched and looking for connections. Um, there's a line in this movie that that uh, that jumped out at me and made me think about something we watched earlier. It's it's when um, Tatum is talking to Boot. And trying to convince him to hire him. And he says, you know, big stories, little stories. If there's no story, I'll go out and bite a dog. Right. He's just like, like, it's like, I will make the story if I have to. And what the, the line that came to mind was a line from one of, uh, one of both of our favorite films, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. <laughs> uh, from Citizen Kane. I mean, because I was, I don't think of Citizen mm. Kane as like a journalism film, but it's like there's actually a lot of journalism in there, right? You have, you have within Kane, you have the the statement of, of uh, I forget what he calls it, the statement of not, it's not ethics, but whatever the right or the principles, statement uh, of principles, right? Like that, that's a version of the embroidered tell the truth, you know, kind of, right? And then you have you see Kane in action and mm-hmm. how he uses, you know, how he uses this. Uh, and, you know, in, in different ways, uh, and that's obviously even that line, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war is a, a version of a William Randolph Hearst line about, I think yeah. you provide the photos, I'll provide the war or something like that. So, um, so it made, it made me think of that as like, oh, this is that Citizen Kane even provide, I mean, provides this, this view of kind of thinking about the media that way. And this, this movie is, uh, uh, maybe more amplified or or um, satirized version of some of the things that we see there. Well, uh, that that prompted me to make a connection to another film, um, Sam. So um, the, the the previous film that we watched with Kirk Douglas, which is uh, Out of the Past, and the conversation between uh, Robert Mitchum's character and his girlfriend about the Jane Greer, uh, and uh, she says, "Oh, no, nobody, nobody's all bad," and he says, "Yeah, but she comes the closest." Um, and it made me think of uh, Lorraine in this film saying to Chuck, you know, I've met lots of hard-boiled eggs in my time, but you, you're 20 minutes. 
which is actually a line that gets quoted in Chicken Run, I believe. Um, there's actually quite a there's there's, there's quite a there's quite a decent um, popular afterlife for this film. It, it, it even gets quoted in um, there's an episode of The Simpsons that's kind of based on the notion of Ace in the Hole. Uh, so anyway, I I, I I I love that particular quote. It, it's funny you say that because that's that's one of the things I wrote in my notes is like there is a whole Simpsons episode that is kind of a version of this yeah. and and it, and, I, and it just made me wonder like oh it, it's it's so funny because that's that's an epi- that's something that came out in the the 90s and you know something i saw a hundred times in the 90s and it's so funny to watch something like that and realize like oh this is this is a reference to something this isn't just i mean it's a reference to lots of other things as well but but i was like wow this really feels like ace in the hole you know to us to uh to a certain degree there even like the kind of industry that grows up around the the fake uh the fake boy in the well well, it's um, like I, I didn't understand half of the Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny cartoons until I started watching older films and realized how much of what goes on in those cartoons as a reference <laughs> to contemporary 40s and 50s films. <laughs> right, right. Um, another connection, which is an obvious one because you had made it last week as, we, as you were presenting this, is thinking about uh, Tatum and Peter Warren as two um, kind of disgraced New York City newspaper men um, who kind of accidentally come across a big story mm-hmm. and find themselves embedded in that story. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts in like a comparison between Tatum and Warren in that way. Yeah, and, and, well, and, and the other thing we would have to add is that they both have a drinking problem. Um, that's not a, it's not played up too much and it happened one night, but we know initially when he's fired, he's drunk. And so we know that Tatum struggles, struggles with alcohol, which is, it's a kind of a trope. You know the hard, the hard driving, hard drinking, drinking reporter. Um, they both have opportunities with women, um, which go in very kind of different directions. And of course, they both end up um, being tempted with an opportunity. And Tatum is completely, completely gives into that temptation, follows a corrupt path, and Warren, uh, Warren, uh, Warren uh, proves himself to be, you know, a person of integrity. So is that is that in part a difference between Billy Wilder and Frank Capra? If we're thinking about, uh, yeah, absolutely. I can't think of, I can't think of two directors with more different views of human nature. You know, Wilder you have to put into the say the Stanley Kubrick cap uh, camp. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a product of that. It's also a product, I think, of 1934 versus 1951, because the fact is, in, in the 30s, when Wilder first started writing with with Brackett. He was writing kind of lighter stuff. In fact, they wrote what's considered one of the 10 essentials, according to the British Film Institute, one of the 10 essential um, screwball comedies, uh, a comedy called Midnight, directed by Mitchell Lyson um, in 1937 or so. And then he and Brackett also wrote a very pleasant little film called The Major and the Minor uh, from 1942, uh, which is just kind of a, a comedy with Ginger Rogers. So he was capable, depending on the era in which he is writing, Wilder's capable of a lighter touch. But I think the true Billy Wilder is the Billy Wilder of Sunset Boulevard uh, and Ace in the Hole and, uh, and The Apartment as well. I think that's, that's where you really see that, that, that cynical view that really comes out of, you mentioned his background in Germany. He was born in Poland. He lost his mother and grandmother in the Holocaust. Um, I mean, that really forever changed his view of human nature. Well, let me ask you this then about Wilder, because I, when I think about pairing this movie with Sunset Boulevard, they seem like, they seem like peas in a pod. Like they, those are like, they just, they, they make so much sense together, but this is the third Billy Wilder film we watched. We also watched, um, some like it hot, right? Yeah. 
I was looking, what's the relationship there? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, well, you know, one of the things we should say is um, if you take those three films, as I said earlier, Sunset Boulevard is the last film he wrote with Charles Brackett. Uh, Ace in the Hole is the first film he writes with somebody else. I can't even remember the co-writers on this one. But then Some Like It Hot is I.A.L. I -A -L Diamond. And I.A.L. Diamond was a very different kind of writer than, than Brackett and a very different kind of sensibility than Wilder. And it's almost as though Wilder needed to pair with somebody who would help him lighten the mood a little bit. You know, somebody said a little bit cynically about Wilder himself, um, after the failure of Ace in the Hole commercially, he did a whole string of kind of undistinguished, quote, safe films in an effort to kind of recapture the box office. So Wilder always had his eye on what would what would please the audience. Um, if I were if I were straining for a connection, I would say, well, you know, some like it hot's got gangsters. So there's a little bit of the underworld there. But otherwise, I would just say I think it's Wilder uh, knowing how to please an audience, basically. It, it, it's really interesting to think about, too, like the sort of notion of how much because I mean, films are by definition collaborative no matter how a tourist you are in your view of like what what film art is that it's it's collaborative to the extent that the person he's working with to to write helps to shape or or steer a little bit in terms of some different uh some different directions so i think that's that's really interesting to think about well the other way too in which wilder's career um evolved is when he first came to the United States, as you might expect, his English was not the strongest. So one of the things he gained from working with Brackett was he, Wilder was doing, from what I understand, a lot more of kind of the structuring of the films, and Brackett was doing a lot more of the dialogue. So I think there's changes in Wilder's career as he himself becomes more comfortable uh, with, uh, with American uh, English. So as we look at this movie, um, we... One of the we've talked a lot about Tatum and, and and connections with things. I'm curious your thoughts on other characters in this movie, kind of the the role they play, people that jump out at you as as interesting pieces to this story. Well, I think you know one of my favorite characters in this film um, is uh, is Mr. Boot uh, Porter Hall. Uh, Porter Hall was one of those character actors. He he often played unsympathetic characters. We met him briefly in Sullivan's Travels. Uh, he is the, one of the movie moguls in Soldier's Travels. Um, I, I really like, I, I like his character. I like, I, I like the fact that he's not a sap, that he does believe in tell the truth, which appears in two different shots in the film. It's in the newsroom and it's in his office. Um, but he's, he knows exactly where Tatum is coming from. He's not a rube. He's not taken in by Tatum. Um, and, and he does stand for genuine journalistic integrity. Um, so I find him really interesting and, and sympathetic. Um, and then I really, I really am fascinated by uh, the arc that Herbie takes. Um, Herbie, Herbie reminds me a lot of the uh, of the deaf kid in out of the out of the past. Actually, in fact, I had to double check; it wasn't the same actor. They look so similar. Um, so he's kind of you know this classic sidekick, but he also takes this kind of journey from you know he's wet behind the ears and. He kind of gets taken in by Tatum, and yet at the same time, he's able to kind of um, avoid being completely corrupted by Tatum. So I, I, I really, I really like his his role. And then, of course, Lorraine is a is a great classic kind of. Uh, she really is a classic film noir femme fatale, um, and her performance is a really interesting contrast to Kirk Douglas's. He's he's really kind of over the top, 
and she is kind of this this quieter um all but equally cynical uh performance uh you just you just named the three people i had on my list that i was hoping you would talk about so that's that's great what i love about the so i'm gonna just touch on some of those what i love about the herbie arc is that you don't see that I can think of, you don't see, he doesn't have scenes of his own. So it's like, his is like a separate story. Like you could almost retell this story through his perspective and be like, oh, that would be, that would also be an interesting story, you know, like, because you're seeing him change, but you're not even seeing necessarily, there's not like big scenes where it's like, oh, this is where he's made this step. He's just sort of, he's kind of along, but you realize as the movie goes on, how much he's, sort of bought into what Tatum's doing at least for uh for for a while there. Um what I love about Boot, um one of one of my favorite uh kind of running bits in this is the um when when Tatum first comes in and he says, you know, do you want to make $200 a week? I'll, I'll I'll and he says, you know, I'm a $250 journalist, but I'll work for 50 and then he negotiates himself down to 40. And I think it's such a great character moment that as Boot hires him, he says, I pay $60 a week to everyone. And it's so, so there's sort of this integrity of like, I can tell you're kind of a huckster. I can tell you're kind of a con man. So I'm not buying into this to the extent where he could have hired him for 40, but he's, he hires him for 60 because he has principles about that mm-hmm. even. Um, and I, I sort of love that. And then that comes back at the end, you know, as he's dying and he says, yeah. you know, yeah. does he want to make a thousand dollars a week? Uh, yeah, I love that circular structure to the film, the way it opens and closes like that. That's great. I also thought Lorraine was interesting because um, she's also a character um, who's an outsider to this community to to an extent, right? She comes from the from the east, just like Tatum does. So they sort of find each other, and then there is this this moment of trying to think about kind of what the relationship between the two of them is going to be and Tatum trying that, that she seems like one of the few people that Tatum can't entirely control, right? That, that he keeps pointing out how she's like, like, like you don't see the other characters uh, too much kind of getting out of line. He's able to like curb them back in. But I mean, it's, I think it's, it's significant that, that, that he's the person where twice he gets very physical with her, right? He slaps her and then he, um, which made me think of the slap at the beginning of it happened one night. Um, mm-hmm. And then he, you know, almost strangles her, you know, at a certain point, like trying to control her, that she is somebody who, um, who he can't just by force of his um, intellect and con control, because she's a bit of a con person herself. And that, that's one of the things I like about the film, because, you know, um, you know, whether you call film noir a style or a genre, it's got familiar tropes, right? And the, the femme fatale is supposed to be the one that kind of leads the, the protagonist astray. You know? And the classic one would be Double Indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. So one of the things I really like about this film is that she doesn't, she's not a femme fatale in that sense. She's not a siren. She doesn't lead, she doesn't distract him from his main goal, which is what femme fatales often do, or lead him into destruction. He does that himself very nicely. Uh, and in a sense, Leo functions kind of as the, as the, as the femme fatale because that's the one who causes, it, it is a classic noir triangle. Uh, and that's what causes ultimately the, the scene of the near strangulation. So then she does get him by stabbing him, which is a very femme fatale thing to kind of do. So I love the way the film both plays with and then plays kind of against 
that tall femme fatale uh, persona. I would say the last thing, the last thing that I have, um, which was just, this isn't a movie full of, full of, well, as a satire, I mean, it has, it's, it's sort of funny to a degree in terms of like how far things go. But I remember watching it with, uh, with, with my family and thinking, you know, we use the, the phrase like media circus a lot, yeah. you know, and they're the point where the literal carnival comes and they set up. And I just remember thinking, Oh my goodness. <laughs> like they're yeah. at, so like you see scenes of people watching things play out from a Ferris wheel. And it's just like this is but at the same time, like it's it's one of those good things where he just keeps inching it up enough where by the time you get there, you think like, Yeah, I guess, I guess I could believe that. That makes sense. There's a you know, if there are all these people here, you know, you see there are people who see that as an opportunity. How can I cash in on this? I mean, we see Lorraine, um, Lorraine cashing in, you know, on through the through the restaurant, you know, talking about it's the first thousand dollars she's ever had. And, you know, and and she's she's looking at sort of when do we cash out on this, which is also like a great um, almost feels like a heist movie to a degree there where where she's like, OK, do, do we have enough? Should we go? And you see Tatum. It's like Tatum's looking for the biggest score possible. Right. So yeah. I, I, I love I love that that sort of tension in there. Um, other things you want to talk about? Well, you know, I, I guess I want to go back to my uh, one of my other premises for revisiting this film, which was to think a little bit about um, what does this show us about how Kirk Douglas might have pulled off the R.P. McMurphy role in uh, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Because um, I think it really is kind of um, Douglas at his most. Um, maybe unhinged is too strong a word, but there's a kind of a manic energy about him. Uh, and the character himself, uh, and, and maybe this is a very uh, kind of um, forced comparison, but I had forgotten that a whole year goes by before the story actually falls into his lap. And so I had to think that scene of him pacing around the newsroom, complaining, I thought I was only be here for a few weeks, and I'm here for a year. I, I mean, just I just had to think about the fact of R.P. McMurphy thinking that he's gonna be in and out of the uh, of the mental hospital in just a couple of months. Um, that that's brilliant. I you know I I thought about McMurphy when with the strangling because that's a that yeah. echoes at the end of that. But but you're absolutely right. He walks around that newsroom in the way that McMurphy walks around the ward, trying to like get people to do things. Try yeah, and and I also love that he sort of takes on the uniform of the place because you see him wearing suspenders and a belt. Yeah, and you know, and and, the, and a year before he had sort of jokingly um, praised. Uh, praise boot for that but really sort of pointing out the absurdity of that and then you see him dressed like that as well you know he, ta and he takes herbie under his wing this is maybe more of a plot you know, a plot thing he takes herbie under his wing in the same way that mcmurphy takes billy under his wing um he over he's got a, an opportunity that he overreaches uh in the same way that mcmurphy ends up you know drunk and sleeping by the open window um and, and as I said earlier, he does demonstrate at the end that he has some kind of a conscience, some kind of a heart in the same way you see that happening with, with McMurphy. And of course, neither one, well, McMurphy doesn't die. Well, he doesn't get out alive because he indeed, the chief kills, big chief kills him. And uh, Tatum doesn't get out alive either. So I don't know, I, I guess it made me think, ah, it'd be a very different performance from a Jack Nicholson McMurphy, but I could see how Douglas could have pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, especially if if that movie was made in—I mean, the book hadn't been out yet—but if that movie's made in 1959 or something, it's like 
that seems like that would work great. I mean, in the sense that I, in that I can imagine him in the role more easily. Like I can imagine either Gene Hackman or, uh, or Marlon Brando. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. So are there, are there other, well, obviously there, there are other, what are other, um, Kirk Douglas performances that if somebody was like, I, they, they watched out of the past, they watched the, I loved him in out of the past. I really liked him in this movie. Um, if somebody was like, I want to go, I want to go deeper with Kirk Douglas, what would be the next Kirk Douglas film? Well, I think I would, you know, I, I, I love his, his turn in paths of glory. Um, the Kubrick, the 57 Kubrick film. Um, I suppose another kind of classic, uh, Kirk Douglas performance would be uh, in Spartacus, which is also a sort of a Kubrick film. Uh, and then he's in a Hollywood film, and um, I can't, oh gosh, I can't come up with the title of it. I keep wanting to say The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and that's not it. But it's got good or ugly or good and bad in it. It's from 1952-53, Vincent Minnelli. He plays kind of a corrupt Hollywood producer. That's a, that's another really good one. I think his best performances were in the, were in the 50s. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with this? Um, well, I guess I, I just want to say that um, one of the really great pieces I, I saw in this film is an essay by Guy Madden. Uh, Guy Madden is a great independent Canadian filmmaker, and he has an essay on the Criterion uh, channel about this film. And he has one of the he has one of the best descriptions of Kirk Douglas that I've ever read, which unfortunately I did not do not have right in front of me. But he talks at one point about Kirk Douglas's body being a series of triangles, uh, which I which I really love. And he says, um, uh, in praising the performance, he says Douglas pulls the choke out and persuades us that the power behind Tatum's ability to enthrall comes not only from his sharp tongue, city manners, and sociopathic ambition, but also from his genuine exuberance for a good story well told. So, Oh, I like that. I recommend that essay to your attention. It's a brilliant essay. So when you're, that's actually leads me to, to one, one last question before we get to next week's recommendation. When you are watching a film and then you go to read about it, what, what sources do you find yourself going to? Um, to be, to be honest, I, I start with Wikipedia. Um, because I have found in the past, depending on the film you're looking at, for example, when I did the Wikipedia uh, article on Bicycle Thieves, I discovered that basically somebody had just transcribed most of the commentary track. So it was actually really reliable. Uh, and and the, the, in a sense, the, the smaller the film or the more artistic the film, the better the commentary you're going to get in a place like Wikipedia. And then also you'll get, um, with Wikipedia, the other way it can be helpful, as you know, is you get a lot of references. That's how I found the guy Madden article for example um uh it was footnoted in the wikipedia article so i do that i will then go to rotten tomatoes um depending on the era of the film uh and there are particular critics that i kind of trust among the top critics um and then often there's just a general um uh, uh google search uh mm. and looking for things like the new yorker commentary magazine uh, to pop up. And then depending on the film, I might actually have a, uh, a book at home that I would use. For, for example, for this film, I used um, the Film Noir Encyclopedia, uh, which had a pretty good article. So those are some of the things that I do. I want to shout out one website that I'm always excited when they have an article on a film we're watching, uh, and it's called Deep Focus Review. Mm. Um, they don't have a lot of a lot of the movies we've looked at, they don't have articles on, but whenever they do, it's always like a meaty 
eight to 10 page essay that, that gets into often the history of the production of the film, the, the filmmaker. Uh, so I, I find a lot of the stuff that I read is kind of rehashing and repeating similar things, but whenever there's something in deep focus review, I really, it's, it's, it feels like they're pulling from something a little bit different. And, uh, so, so they, for example, had a really great essay on, uh, Patir Panchale when, when we did that movie, they had a good one on this, uh, as well. So that's always a, a site that I look to and sort of hope that they have something on the movie we're watching. Um, and I I did discover Midwest film journal. They also have a website and I've, I've, I forgot to mention that one. Um, I've used them a couple of times. Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, I feel like we have to complete the trifecta. You know, we started with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the second film to sweep the big Academy Five awards. So I feel like we got to go Silence of the Lambs and see the third film that swept all five of the big awards. And I will say right now, I have not seen Silence of the Lambs since 1991 when it came out. So uh, this will be kind of interesting uh, for me and I hope for our listeners. Yeah, I, I I'm guessing probably '92 or '93. I've only seen it once, and it was it was when it came out on home video. So probably probably somewhere around there. So it's a movie I hear talked about a lot. So I'm really uh, I'm really excited to watch this. This is one that I will not watch with my daughter, <laughs> but uh, it's a little bit tougher hang. But but yeah, I'm actually this is a movie I've been meaning to rewatch. So I'm actually really excited that you uh, that you picked this one. I'm I'm really curious to see how well it stands up. I mean, there are a lot of iconic moments in that movie. There's a lot of scenes I can still see in my head. And, you know, I think Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins are two great actors. So I'm hoping it stands up, but I'm just not really sure. So we'll see. All right. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film. Uh, this is one that I think I will go back to. I would love to talk with uh, with our journalism professors about a movie like this uh, because it's a it's a different kind of journalism movie than the than what tends to come to mind than our than sort of the all the president's men type of movie. Uh, but I think it is it feels very important and very true. And 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 again, I the biggest comp I would make is if you liked the movie Network. I feel like. I, that's where I felt the most, the most similar vibe. So thank you so much for recommending this and for the conversation. Um, that is all the time that we have. We will be back next week to talk about the silence of the lambs in the video store.